I just wanted to start off um, by acknowledging um, the supervision and mentorship that I received from Stanley Uliazic and Carolyn Potter and Elizabeth Shue um, 10 years ago from the Medical Anthropology Program here at Oxford. Um, I focused my studies on nutritional anthropology and learned about the social and cultural context of nutrition, as well as research methods in anthropometrics and attending seminars like these, like the UBVO seminars. Um, we also, in that coursework, had a paper series on the phenomenology of the body and gender using anorexia nervosa as an example. I wrote my master's dissertation on undernutrition among people living with HIV in Western Kenya. And during my field work, I was shocked to observe firsthand the significant health consequences of severe acute malnutrition and wasting in this context. After Oxford, I moved to San Francisco to complete my medical training, and given my research interests in malnutrition, I began studying eating disorders, which are the local cause of severe acute malnutrition among San Francisco teenagers, and focused on understanding gender differences. So today, I will be focusing on my research on gender differences in muscle-enhancing and disordered eating behaviors among US adolescents and young adults. As an overview of today's talk, I will discuss a few learning objectives, clinical cases, background, and epidemiology of muscle enhancement building and disordered eating behaviors, medical complications, and clinical and public health implications. So today's learning objectives are first, to recognize gender differences in the presentation of eating disorders in adolescents and young adults. Second, to describe characteristics of disordered eating behaviors for weight loss and for muscle enhancement. And third, to identify gender differences and risk factors for the development of eating disorders in adolescents and young adults. I will start off with a case. So in the USA, we have a subspecialty called adolescent medicine and we care for a growing number of teenagers with adolescent eating disorders. One example of a typical patient is Ashley, a 16-year-old female who felt fat despite weighing less than 50 kilograms. Her goal was to lose an additional 15 kilograms of weight. In order to achieve this, she would skip breakfast and lunch, restricting to less than 500 calories per day. If she consumed more than 500 calories per day, she would vomit or use laxatives after meals. Ashley's case illustrates disordered eating behaviors for weight loss, including fasting or skipping meals, severe restriction of food intake, vomiting, laxatives, and diuretic use. These are classic weight loss behaviors that we associate with eating disorders. Now let's compare Ashley with another case, this time a boy. Johnny is a 16-year-old male wrestler who was referred to our eating disorders clinic. When asked about these quote-unquote typical behaviors for weight loss, such as fasting, restricting, vomiting, or diuretics, he denied all of them. However, his parents report that he's become obsessed with his appearance, but in pursuit of becoming muscular. He attempts to eat 3,000 calories of mainly protein, mostly egg whites, whey protein powder, and shakes. He's tried to eliminate fats and carbohydrates from his diet. In addition to varsity wrestling practice, for two hours a day, he additionally goes to the gym to weightlift for an additional three hours per day. He no longer eats out with his family at restaurants because the food is not considered high enough in protein content. So what do we call this? Is this anorexia nervosa? Is this an eating disorder? 
and what do we know about eating disorders in boys? Most body image and eating disorder research is focused on thinness and weight loss, particularly in females. Less than 1% of body image and eating disorder research has focused specifically in males. We do know that the idealized male body image has become increasingly large and muscular, and this may manifest as a drive to gain weight and build muscle. To illustrate this point, I will cite the work of Harrison Pope at Harvard, who examined trends in muscularity of male action figures over time. Here we see Batman and Superman action figures from prior to 2000. Now we see the Batman and Superman figurines our current children play with. Pope found that over a 30-year period, boys' action figures have become increasingly muscular, with larger biceps, shoulders, chests, and more defined abdominal and serratus muscles. Similarly, let's look at earlier Hollywood stars from past decades and the male body image that they portray. In contrast, current Hollywood stars also appear to be bigger, bulkier, and have more defined musculature. To achieve the idealized muscular body type, young boys and men may engage in muscle-enhancing behaviors, including protein overconsumption, dietary restriction of particularly carbohydrates and fats, appearance and performance enhancing drugs and substances, including anabolic androgenic steroids, androstenedione, and creatine, as well as compulsive exercise. While engaging in muscle enhancing behaviors alone may not necessarily constitute an eating disorders, they may put young people at risk for one. One recent diagnosis that may capture this phenomenon is muscle dysmorphia, also known as bigorexia or reverse anorexia. This was introduced in 2013 um, as a subtype of body dysmorphic disorder in the Diagnostic and Statistical Ma Manual, 5th edition. This is characterized by a preoccupation or obsession with insufficient muscularity, though in most cases an individual's build is normal or, mus or actually muscular. This occurs most commonly in males who may engage in muscle-enhancing behaviors to achieve these body image goals. There is limited research on weight gain attempts and muscle-building behaviors in population-based studies. And in the United States, this has been limited to a few states, um, Diane Mark Steiner and Eisenberg's group um, in Minnesota, and Calzo et al. in, in Massachusetts. However, we don't have nationally representative data from the United States, and those prior research have been in adolescence, so up to age 18, uh, and not included young adults um, after they turn 18, who may also be at high risk for some of these behaviors. So with these gaps in mind, I set out to understand the epidemiology of muscle-enhancing goals and behaviors in adolescents and young adults in the United States. I developed three specific aims. First, to determine the prevalence of weight gain attempts in US adolescents. Second, to determine the prevalence of muscle enhancing behaviors in US adolescents and young adults. And third, to identify adolescent predictors of muscle enhancing behaviors in young adults. For all of these aims, I assessed differences by gender. In the first study I will describe, 
My objective was to understand the prevalence of weight gain goals and attempts in U.S. adolescents. By attempts, I mean adolescents who report they are trying to gain weight or build muscle. I used data from the 2015 Youth Risk Behavior Survey, a nationally representative cluster sample of high school students sponsored by the United States Centers for Disease Control. The sample is racially and ethnically diverse, and the sample size was over 15,000. The Youth Risk Behavior Survey asked adolescents about weight attempts. So which of the following are you trying to do about your weight? Either gain weight, lose weight, or stay the same weight. In addition, they asked about weight self-perception. So how do you describe your weight, either underweight, about the right weight, or overweight? And finally, body mass index was calculated based on self-reported weight and height. Here are the results. While only 3% of the male sample is underweight by BMI, 19% actually perceive themselves to be underweight. Therefore, there is a mismatch with actual weight and perceived weight, particularly in boys. I also found that a third of boys are trying to gain weight compared to only 7% of girls. In contrast, 61% of girls report trying to lose weight compared to only 31% of boys. In the previous slide, I showed that one-third of boys are trying to gain weight in the US. This slide shows that the proportion of current weight status is classified by body mass index. Unsurprisingly, a large proportion of boys and girls who are underweight report trying to gain weight. However, what was more surprising to me was that 40% of boys who are objectively considered normal weight are still trying to gain weight and 11% of boys who are considered overweight or obese are also trying to gain additional weight. After finding that one-third of adolescent boys are attempting to gain weight, I wanted to better understand what behaviors were being used to gain weight. I also wanted to extend the age range to young adults. Therefore, my second aim was to estimate the prevalence of muscle-enhancing behaviors in adolescents and young adults and to assess differences by gender, again using a nationally representative sample. The Youth Risk Behavior Survey was limited to high school adolescents and did not ask about muscle building behaviors, so I turned to data from the U.S. National Longitudinal Study of Adolescent to Adult Health, also known as AdHealth. AdHealth is a longitudinal cohort of a nationally representative sample of over 20,000 adolescents in the U.S who have been followed into adulthood. At baseline or wave one, the adolescents were 11 to 18 years old. They were then followed one year later and again seven years later. We used, we used repeated cross-sectional analyses for our prevalence estimates. AdHealth asked about specific behaviors for muscle enhancement, including weightlifting to bulk up, exercise to bulk up, supplements, dieting, legal performance-enhancing substances such as creatine, androstenedione, and androgenic anabolic steroids. The performance-enhancing substances and steroids questions were only asked in young adulthood at wave three. AdHealth also asked about weight gain attempts, similar to the Youth Risk Behavior Survey. Before discussing specific behaviors, 
I wanted to show prevalence estimates of weight gain attempts by gender and by age. In this figure, the prevalence of weight gain attempts is shown on the y-axis and age is shown on the x-axis. The blue indicates males and the red indicates females. As you can see, the prevalence of weight gain attempts in males peaks at around eight, age 18 at 35%, but remains above 20% for most of adolescence and young adulthood. At all ages, the prevalence of weight gain attempts is higher in males than it is in females. These findings corroborate the approximately 30% prevalence of weight gain attempts in adolescent males we previously reported from their youth risk behavior survey, but additionally shows temporal changes through young adulthood. In the next series of figures, I show prevalence estimates of specific muscle-enhancing behaviors on the y-axis by age on the x-axis. Again, the blue indicates males and the red indicates females. In this figure, weightlifting for muscle enhancement is the solid line, and exercise to enhance muscle is the dotted line. As you can see, the prevalence of weightlifting in males peaks at around 22% uh, at age 18, similarly to the age when weight gain attempts peak. At all ages, the prevalence of weightlifting and exercise to enhance muscle is higher in males than it is in females. In this next figure, supplements for muscle enhancement is the solid line, and dieting to enhance muscle is the dotted line. The prevalence of supplement use in males peaks at around age 21 at 7%, whereas the prevalence of dieting for muscle enhancement peaks at around age 18 in males. It is important to note that this question asks specifically about dieting for muscle enhancement, not for weight loss. The prevalence of dieting for weight loss was assessed separately and overall more common. Again, at all ages, the prevalence of these muscle enhancing behaviors is higher in males than in females. In this figure, androgenic anabolic steroids is the solid line and legal performance enhancing substances for athletes such as creatine and androstenedione is the dotted line. These questions were only asked in wave three, so prevalence estimates are only available in the young adult period and not in adolescence. Surprisingly, 18% of males aged 17 to 19 reported use of performance enhancing substances, and this declined over time. Steroid use in males was around 2.5% and relatively stable through young adulthood. Again, in males, the prevalence rates were higher than in females. Finally, I wanted to identify which factors in adolescence predicted engagement in muscle-enhancing behaviors in young adulthood. I used ad health data to examine baseline adolescent factors associated with what young adult muscle-enhancing behaviors at seven-year follow-up. I examined potential predictors including race or ethnicity, substance use, body mass index, and participation in team sports. We conducted logistic regression analyses, adjusting for age, race ethnicity, and household income. These are the results from the logistic regression analyses, adjusting for potential confounders. We found that black or African-American race, alcohol use, smoking, 
lower body mass index and participation in team sports were prospectively associated with higher odds of engaging in muscle enhancing behaviors in young adults. So in summary, one third of adolescent boys report trying to gain weight, including a significant proportion who are considered normal weight by BMI. The prevalence of weight gain attempts, weightlifting, and exercise to enhance muscle peaks at around age 18. And black race, alcohol, smoking, low BMI, and participation in team sports predict engagement in muscle enhancing behaviors later in adulthood. So although we focused up to now on weight gain attempts and muscle enhancing behaviors, I also wanted to examine gender differences in the more typical disordered eating behaviors generally used for weight loss. Here I provide some definitions of the terms I will be using for these sets of analyses. Unhealthy weight control behaviors refers to vomiting, fasting, skipping meals, or laxative diuretic use to lose weight. Binge eating behaviors are defined as eaten so much in a short period that would have been embarrassed if others had seen it. Disordered eating behaviors include an affirmative response to either unhealthy weight control behaviors or to binge eating. The specific aims for my next set of analyses included, first, to determine the prevalence of disordered eating behaviors in US young adults, second, to determine adolescent predictors of young adult disordered eating behaviors, and third, to determine health outcomes associated with disordered eating behaviors in later adulthood. We stratified all analyses by gender and by weight status. Prior literature has indicated that these behaviors may differ by weight status as well as gender. This is a graphical representation of those three specific aims. Aim one analyzes the prevalence in young adulthood. Aim two determines adolescent predictors of young adult disordered eating behaviors. And aim three determines cardiometabolic health outcomes associated with disordered eating behaviors at seven year follow up. For each of these aims, we analyze data from ad health. For aim one, we examine the prevalence at wave three when the cohort is 18 to 26 years old. For aim two, we analyze predictors from the wave one baseline when the cohort was 11 to 18 years old. And finally, for aim three, we analyze outcomes at wave four when the cohort was 24 to 32 years old. So let's examine the prevalence data from our first aim. This is a bar graph of the prevalence of disordered eating behaviors by gender and weight status. Females are in red and males are in blue. Young adults considered underweight or normal weight with a BMI less than or equal to 25 kilograms per meter squared are on the left, whereas young adults considered overweight or obese with a BMI greater than 25 are on the right. As you can see, the prevalence of disordered eating behaviors is more common in females than in males, and more common in young adults who are overweight or obese versus underweight or normal weight. Nearly 30% of young women considered overweight or obese engage in disordered eating behaviors. 
This is a graphical representation of the prevalence of disordered eating behaviors in young adults, but stratified by all four BMI classifications. As you can see, young adults with obesity had the highest rates of disordered eating behaviors, followed by overweight, normal weight, then underweight. So although it is a common perception that disordered eating behaviors occur most commonly in persons who are underweight, these data show that young adults with obesity actually report the highest rates of disordered eating behaviors. So having determined that the prevalence of disordered eating behaviors differed by gender and weight status, we wanted to examine predictors of disordered eating behaviors also by gender and weight status. Prior literature has examined predictors of unhealthy weight control behaviors and found that family dysfunction or disconnectedness, as well as school disconnectedness, were associated with the development of unhealthy weight control behaviors. However, prior studies have not disaggregated by both gender and weight status. Thus, we examined these risk factors stratifying by both gender and weight status. This figure shows results from the logistic regression analyses, adjusting for age, race ethnicity, and household income. The top set of predictors are family-related factors, and the bottom set are school and community-related factors. The outcome of unhealthy weight control behaviors was stratified with underweight or normal weight over here on the left versus overweight or obese on the right, and then further by female on the left and male on the right. So what was striking is that these factors that were associated with the unhealthy weight control behaviors were only statistically significant in the females who were underweight or normal weight. However, these risk factors for unhealthy weight control behaviors did not apply to males regardless of their weight status or in females who are considered overweight or obese. So thus, the traditional risk factors for unhealthy weight controlled behaviors previously shown in the literature, such as family disconnectedness or dysfunction and school disconnectedness did not apply to males or to females who are overweight. Finally, we wanted to determine health consequences of disordered eating behaviors in later adulthood. In this figure, we examined body mass index change outcomes at seven-year follow-up. So on average, participants in the whole cohort had an increase in BMI during the follow-up period. However, you can see that in both males and females, those who reported disordered eating behaviors had greater gains in BMI than those who did not report disordered eating behaviors during the seven-year follow-up period. This relationship between disordered eating behaviors and greater BMI gain remained significant for both males and for females in linear regression analyses that adjusted for race, ethnicity, age, baseline BMI, and household income. Now let's turn to cardiometabolic outcomes at seven-year follow-up. We examined the relationships between disordered eating behaviors and hyperlipidemia, diabetes, and hypertension. This figure shows one significant association that we found. 
Men who reported binge eating at baseline had higher incident hyperlipidemia during the follow-up period in unadjusted analyses. We also conducted logistic regression analyses adjusting for race, ethnicity, age, baseline BMI, and education. Binge eating was associated with the nearly two-fold odds of incident hyperlipidemia in adjusted models in males, but not in females. We next examined diabetes risk. In unadjusted comparisons, disordered eating behaviors were associated with higher rates of incident diabetes in both males and in females. However, when we adjusted for baseline BMI and other covariates, the association between disordered eating behaviors and diabetes was attenuated and no longer statistically significant. We did not find any significant associations between disordered eating behaviors and hypertension. So in summary, we found that disordered eating behaviors were more common in females and young adults with overweight or obesity. Young adults who engage in disordered eating behaviors are likely to gain greater BMI in the long run. And we found that binge eating behaviors are associated with the greater odds of incident hyperlipidemia in males, but not in females. Some of the possible reasons for this finding is that males may binge on different foods. There have been some qualitative studies to show that men may binge eat on foods that are higher in protein or fats, whereas women may binge eat on foods that are sweeter. Um, men may have a greater severity of binge eating um, and also may be lower treatment seeking and less likely to be identified by the medical community. So thus far, we've reviewed the epidemiology of muscle enhancing and disordered eating behaviors in large population-based studies. But next, I wanted to turn to clinical samples to better understand gender differences in medical complications of eating disorders. I performed a literature review of gender differences in medical complications of eating disorders uh, for adolescent medicine state-of-the-art reviews. Eating disorders and resultant malnutrition can cause significant medical complications affecting every organ system. There is a limited but growing body of research that has examined medical complications of eating disorders in males. We do know that eating disorders and the resultant malnutrition can affect your heart, brain, blood, guts, electrolytes, hormones, growth, and bone. I chose to focus my clinical research on gender differences in skeletal complications of eating disorders. Bone health and eating disorders is a particular area with research gaps in males. In fact, the current Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine guidelines on the medical management of eating disorders have testing recommendations that only apply to females currently. The guidelines state that dual energy X-ray absorptiometry or DEXA scans should be obtained when amenorrhea or lack of menses is present for six months or more. Clearly these guidelines are not applicable to males. Also of note, uh, prior to the DSM-5 in 2013, uh, criteria for anorexia nervosa was actually presence of amenorrhea, and so males could not be diagnosed with anorexia nervosa prior to 2013. 
So my colleagues and I have recently identified gaps in eating disorder guidelines for males and are currently in the process of working on a book and updating current guidelines where these gaps exist. So I conducted a retrospective chart review of 278 adolescents uh, with clinical diagnoses of anorexia nervosa who had had DEXA scans on a Hologic 4500 densitometer. Bone mineral density and bone mineral content were converted to sex, race, and age-specific z-scores using reference ranges from the U.S. Bone Mineral Density and Childhood Study. We found that males with anorexia nervosa had equally severe deficits in bone mineral density compared to females at all sites, including the whole body, lumbar spine, femoral neck, and total hip. Thus, it is equally important to assess for bone density deficits in males as it is in females with anorexia nervosa. We next looked at gender differences in fracture risk using data from the Health Improvement Network, a large UK primary care database. We compared fracture rates in adults with anorexia nervosa to age, gender, and practice matched adults without eating disorders. We used multivariate Cox regression to estimate the hazards ratio for incident fracture. This figure shows the hazard ratio of incident fracture of participants with anorexia nervosa versus participants without an eating disorder. The hazard ratio is on the y-axis and age on the x-axis. Males are the black circles and females are the gray triangles. Females with anorexia nervosa had a higher risk of fracture rates at all age groups. Anorexia nervosa was associated with a higher risk of fractures among males older than 40 years old, but not among males younger than 40. This was thought to be due to the relatively high fracture rate at baseline in young men in the general population. So to summarize our findings from gender differences in skeletal complications of eating disorders, Bone deficits at males with anorexia are just as severe as in females with anorexia nervosa. Females with anorexia nervosa have increased fracture risk at all ages compared to females without eating disorders. And males older than 40 years old with anorexia nervosa have increased fracture risk than males without eating disorders. And thus our guidelines need to reflect some of these complications. This body of work has several clinical implications. First, it's important to note that males and females have differing body image goals, which may lead to different behaviors in pursuit of muscularity or in pursuit of thinness. We find that a third of adolescent boys are trying to gain weight or bulk up. Therefore, it's important to ask about muscle-enhancing behaviors and discourage ones such as anabolic steroids that have significant short and long-term health consequences. To this end, my colleagues Stuart Murray and others have recently developed and validated a 15-item test called the Muscularity-Oriented Eating Test. Here are a few examples of some of the items. We hope that this tool may be useful for providers in assessing for muscle-enhancing behaviors related to food. While the English version has been published last month, 
It is now being translated and validated in Spanish, Portuguese, Chinese, Turkish, and other languages. Of note, in San Francisco, a third of our patient population speaks Spanish, and up to a quarter speaks Chinese, and thus it's important to have validated tools in all of these languages for assessment. So to this end, we've been working with colleagues in Argentina to translate and validate clinical eating disorders measures into Spanish, particularly for use in Latin American populations, as Latin American Spanish may differ from Spanish in Spain. This year, we worked on the Spanish language version of the eating disorders examination questionnaire, which is the most commonly used measure for quote unquote traditional eating disorders, such as anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. We've also worked on trans the tr Spanish translation of the muscle dysmorphic disorder inventory, which is the gold standard for diagnosis of muscle dysmorphia. In terms of clinical implications for disordered eating behaviors, we find that disordered eating behaviors were more common in females and young adults with overweight and obesity. And therefore, clinicians should ask if and how young people are trying to lose weight and discourage unsafe practices such as vomiting, fasting, or non-prescribed weight loss medications like laxatives and diuretics. And clinicians or concerned parents may refer to eating disorder specialists if there are concerns. My future research will examine long-term health consequences of muscle-enhancing behaviors using later waves from AdHealth. Currently, performance-enhancing drugs and supplements are unregulated in the United States, and therefore there's limited data on their health consequences. Also, while today's research has not addressed sexual identity or gender identification, I will note that we care for many transgender adolescents in San Francisco who suffer from eating disorders and body image issues at incredibly high rates. And so we are now examining muscle enhancing and disordered eating behaviors in sexual and gender minority populations using data from the PRIDE study, which is the first national longitudinal cohort of LGBTQ populations in the United States. So I would like to thank my collaborators, Kirsten Bibbins Domingo, Andrea Garber, and Stuart Murray at UC San Francisco, as well as my former Oxford mentors, Stanley Uliazic and Carolyn Potter for inviting me to be here. Um, I also would like to acknowledge several funders and sponsors who've supported my research. Um, and I'm very happy to take any questions and thank you very much for the opportunity to share this work.